Hebrews chapter 2 before we dismiss our, our children let me pray for them and for us as we hear God's word thank you Lord for your word for the sacrifice stricken smitten and afflicted for us your people I pray that we would uh, tune our ears to the good news Lord uh, despite anything that might be um, distracting us or keeping us from hearing the good news that you have for your people. I pray that your spirit would transcend that for us and for your covenant children, that we would hear the good news of the gospel, that it would be a comforting and soothing balm to our souls, and that it would equip us for all that you have us to do in this world. And we pray this in Christ's name. And so our children can uh, meet their teachers in the back. If you decide to stay, there are folders for you. If you're an adult, you're just stuck with us. Sorry. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. 
to the persecuted church, to people of God, suffering, troubled, the author of Hebrews has these words, starting in verse 10 of chapter 2. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I've often said that if you want a glimpse into what parenting is like, uh, just take a book, a short book, read it, and then once you get to the end, go back to the beginning and read it again. And then once you get to the end, go back and read it again. And then once you get to the end, go back and read it again and read it again and read it again. That's that's my life uh, these past few weeks. Uh, the, the story that's been on repeat in my house is The Lion King. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, and an underrated aspect of that story is how fitting the end is. If you remember King Mufasa, he's, he's a lion. That's why they call him the Lion King. He, King Mufasa is killed by his brother Scar. And so after rescuing his son Simba from a stampede of, of wildebeest, uh, Mufasa tries to escape back to safety by climbing up a cliff. And who should he meet at the top of that cliff but his brother Scar? But instead of helping him, his brother Scar digs his claws into Mufasa's paws and whispers, Long live the king. And he releases him to his death. That's the beginning of the movie. At the end, fast forward several years, now little cub Prince Mufasa is now big King Simba. Sorry, little cub Simba is now big King Simba. He's full grown. And when he returns to fight Scar, we're faced with a similar scene. King Simba hanging off the edge of a cliff, Mufasa hanging over him with his claws and his paws. And he whispers a similar phrase. He says, that's exactly the way your father looked just before he died. The, key, the phrase, the very situation that caused the king's death was now flipped on its head. Simba, instead of falling to his death, jumps up with new strength, new energy, and defeats Scar. The very situation that caused one king's death now caused the next king's reign. It was such a fitting end. And we see that in our King Jesus 
as well. Everything that happened to Jesus from beginning to end was not just fitting, it was necessary. It needed to happen in order for us to have the Savior that we needed. And so we're going to be asking the question this morning, why did Jesus have to become like us in order to save us? And we're going to see that answering that question has tremendous practical applications. So why did Jesus have to become like us? Because we need a suffering Savior, because we need a sacrificial Savior, and because we need a sympathizing Savior. Suffering, sacrificial, sympathizing. I'll repeat them as we go. So verse 10, right from the beginning, we see that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That phrase, make perfect, might be bothering you a bit, right? If Jesus had to be made perfect, does that mean he wasn't perfect at one time? But I think uh, if we look at what the word actually means and we look at it used in other contexts, you, you will be helped. The Greek word is telos. You've probably heard some mention of it before. It's a word which means the end, the, the, the conclusion, the, the goal. And, and look how James uses it in James chapter 1 in a familiar passage. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So is James saying that you're going to be perfect once you've faced enough trials? I think we, we instinctively know that the answer is no. Perfect means something slightly different in this t- context. It means telos. It means the end, the goal, the finish line. This is the, the, the goal which we are aiming for, the work that we are moving towards. What was the goal? What was the finished product that God desired in his people? We see that again in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. In order to bring many sons to glory, Jesus had to be made perfect through suffering. The author of Hebrews knows what you know. We know that Jesus is perfect. That's why he's compared to the angels as better than the angels. That's why he's proclaimed as the son of God. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that his sin meter was at absolute zero. He was absolutely pure, just like the Old Testament sacrifices had to be. Look at Leviticus chapter 3. God tells his people, if the, sin off- if the offering is a sacrifice of peace, he shall offer it without blemish, without sin, without spot, without stain. The sin is at absolute zero. But the author of Hebrews has also something else in mind. There's a reason the Old Testament sacrifices continued, had to be continually made. Because though they were pure, they were not righteous. Though they had done nothing wrong, they had not done anything right. Jesus was completely pure, no sin, the moment he was born and forever and throughout eternity. But until he lived a righteous life, he was not finished with his work of bringing many sons to glory. It helps me to think of it uh, in terms of a quarterback. Say you have a quarterback walking up to a coach, a college coach, saying, Coach, I'm ready to, to be your quarterback. Put me in. 
I've never thrown a single interception. I've never been sacked. I've never even thrown an incomplete pass. Put me in, coach. You might be impressed, right? Until you ask some follow-up questions. Oh, how many touchdown passes have you thrown? Oh, no, I haven't done that. Sorry. Oh, you must be a running quarterback. How many, how many touchdowns have you run in? Zero. Where exactly did you play football? Oh, I've never played a game in my life. Are you signing that quarterback? No, of course not. Because although he's done nothing wrong, he hasn't done anything right. Although he's pure, he's not righteous. He hasn't endured a defense trying to stop him. He hasn't endured opposing coaches scheming against him. Jesus was holy and he was pure before ever being born as a man. But the amazing thing is that enduring this life, enduring all the temptations that you and I will face, he still remained spotless, sinless, pure, and holy. He not only experienced suffering, he endured it endlessly, earning the righteousness that we would need. That's good news. Amen? And... and we're going to look at exactly what Jesus experienced. I like how our Westminster Confession uh, asks the question and answers it. They ask, wherein does Christ's humiliation consist? What was the suffering that Jesus endured exactly? Was it just dying on the cross? No. It starts long before his death. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And that, in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and then, yes, also the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Christian, the good news that you can cling to in times of persecution, in times of trouble, even in times of peace, is that you do not have a Savior who, is, who took a shortcut to redeem you. You do not have a Savior who skipped to the end and did not endure the suffering that was necessary to earn him righteousness. He suffered the full spectrum of the human experience from, being, from birth to death. And the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that that's not just a nice detail. It was absolutely necessary. Because you cannot stand before the throne of God and say, I am sinless. That would be good. That would be more than you're able to do on your own. But more is required of you. In order to stand before the throne of God and have God say, well done, my good and faithful servant, we also need righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus earned for us. That's why we read in places like Isaiah 53 that, yes, surely Jesus has borne our griefs, amen, that he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, as we just sang, stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, but it's with his wounds that we are healed. It's not just his death. We needed him to die. We'll see that in just a moment. But we also needed him to suffer, to earn that righteousness that we would need to be a part of the kingdom of God. Amen. That is good news indeed. And so as we look to Jesus, we look to a Savior, and we see a pattern. We see a pattern of suffering and then glory. We see a pattern of, of sanctification and then glory. 
And this is here as a reminder for you and me, his audience, that going through persecution is not just temporary. That's nice. That's comforting. Going through persecution is also for our good. And it eventually leads to glory. That is the road to glory. There are no shortcuts for the redeemed people of God. The road to glory, the road to redemption and communion with God is is paved with sanctification. It is paved with suffering. We need to endure it just as our Savior did. But the comfort is that our Savior has gone before us and earned for us everything we need. We do not suffer in order to earn anything. That is the good news of the gospel. And so we need... Jesus became a man. Jesus became like us because we need a suffering Savior, but he also died because we need a sacrificial Savior. Look at verse 14. The author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus became like us to sacrifice, to die. But how does dying solve anything? When does dying make you a savior? When you die in someone's place. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners, every last one of us. And we see in places like Psalm chapter 51, where the the psalmist says from birth that he is a sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. He was a sinner even from the womb. And what's the price of that sin? What's the consequence of that sin? Paul tells us what the Old Testament sacrifices showed us. That the wages of sin is death. Sin has a price to pay. Now you could either pay it yourself or have someone pay it on your behalf. And that is the pattern we see from literally the first chapters of the Bible. We see that God himself, even though we deserve death for our sins, even though God is rightly angry at our sin because it is so destructive, God himself made a way for his people to be washed clean of their sin through the death of another. That's what we call a propitiation. A propitiation is a gift or an offering that turns away the wrath of God against sin. For those of you who have children and sermon notes, a propitiation is a gift or offering that turns away the wrath of God against sin. In the Old Testament, that was the job of the priest. The priest and the high priest would offer animal sacrifices. And they they would transfer your sin onto the animal so that when the animal died and its blood was shed, the payment for your sin was already paid. But you didn't pay it, the animal did. It was a substitution there. In that way, your sins were propitiated, they were paid for. The wrath of God was turned away. That's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says this. Surely it was not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps us, his brothers, the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, because he intends to help us, he became the helper. He may, who was made like us, his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, the one who offers the sacrifice in the service of God to make propitiation. 
for the sins of the people. So in order to restore God to man and man to God, God himself took on a body. He himself became the high priest who offers the sacrifice to God. But in a plot twist of monumental proportions, Jesus didn't just offer a third-party sacrifice. Jesus, the high priest, did what no other high priest has ever done, and that is offer himself as the sacrifice. He was not just the sacrifice offerer, he was the sacrifice itself. And in doing so, he destroyed the greatest weapon the enemy has against us. Most weeks, it is my joy um, to lead Wednesday night youth gathering. Most weeks. Um, One of the things I often tell the, the youth is that the gospel story is everywhere. It's in, it's in books, it's in movies, it's in everything that is around you. And so to demonstrate that, I will often try to watch the same movies and shows that they watch, at least a little bit, to kind of get a glimpse into what they're observing and to try to show them how the gospel is in those things. So one of those examples is the Avengers, um, the superhero craze that's going on now. So in the last Avengers movie, uh, we see that the Avengers, a group of superheroes, are trying to defeat the ultimate bad guy, Thanos. He kind of represents death because he's trying to get these magic infinity stones that will allow him to wipe out a huge number of the population. And so Iron Man, one of the main, one of the main, main characters, sees that there's only one opportunity, one opportunity to defeat him. And so he musters up all his strength, even though he's been battling him for a long time. He engages in one more battle with him. And he tries to, to defeat him, but he's, he's overwhelmed within a few seconds. And so Thanos, equipped with all the Infinity Stones, all the things he needs to destroy a large number of the population, goes to use the stones and snaps his fingers, but nothing happens. It's a huge dud. Because for those of you who have seen the movie know... Iron Man, in his last battle, took away the very thing that Thanos intended to cause death. And he instead took it upon himself. And he snapped his fingers. And he used the same weapon that Thanos intended to use for destruction. And he used it for his destruction. With a snap of his finger, Iron Man destroyed Thanos and all of his armies. And so Christian, in case, in case it's not obvious, that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has taken the very tool that Satan intends to use against God's people, death and fear of death, and used it against him. Jesus defeated death through death. And in doing so, we see the effects in verse 15. He sacrificed himself to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've all seen people who are preoccupied with fear of death. Maybe we've been those people. Spending hundreds on gym memberships and equipment, spending thousands on medical procedures, all to prolong life. And though, and though as Christians we don't fear death, we, we know it's not a happy occasion. But we can say with countless authors of, of Scripture, including Paul, what we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. 
that for us, for the people of God, to live is Christ, but to die is even gain. It is even more. But we cannot say that. We could not say that if Jesus had not died for us, the death that we should have died for our sins. But because he did, because we have a sacrificial Savior, we don't need to live in fear of death, trying to soak up every last minute of fun that we can. Carpe diem. We have eternity. We don't have to live in fear of death trying to prolong our lives. We have eternity. Instead, we have the freedom in Christ to live for Christ, even to suffer for Christ, because we know that since Jesus died as our sacrificial Savior, we can say that to die is gain. To die is gain. Amen, Christian? In Christ, to die is even gain. And so the author of Hebrews goes to great pains to show you that you need a suffering Savior, you need a sacrificial Savior. But it's tempting to look at those things as only in the past or only in the future. And so he brings home a point that he will come back to over and over again in this letter. The fact that we also need a sympathizing Savior. We see this most obviously in verse 18, where the author writes, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being (coughs) tempted. Who do you go to when you need, let's say, parenting advice, or when you needed parenting advice? You don't just pick any random parents, right? You don't just even pick good parents. You pick, usually, parents who are going through the exact same situation or a similar situation that you're going through, because they've gone through it before. They've earned that experience, and you can either take their advice or learn from their mistakes. What about financial help? Well, there you go to someone who seems to know what they're doing, right? You, seem to go, you go to someone who seems to have made wise financial decisions and is using their, their money wisely. And the beauty that the author of Hebrews is trying to point out is that we have both in Jesus. We don't just have someone who has gone through it and has suffered for us. We have someone who also has done it wisely, sinlessly, perfectly. We don't just have holiness and righteousness. We have personal experience in Jesus. And so the transcendent God, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, the one who spoke the universe into existence, is also the God that helps us individually in times of trouble. Think about that for the next week. Think about the implications of the almighty God of the universe taking on a human body and bone and flesh to help you, Christian, in times of trouble. That is cause for for praise and singing and rejoicing. And so the question is, how does does Jesus actually help us? Um, Is he like the parent or the financial advisor who just gives us good advice? I think we know that, no, he's more than that. He's also the Jesus that as he was perfected or made complete and ready, he becomes the same for his brothers and sisters, you and me. Let's fast forward in the letter to Hebrews chapter 12. Here we see that we are told to run the race with with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is not just the founder, but he is the perfecter of our faith. 
He is the perfecter of our faith. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He was made ready and he was made complete. And he is also the one who perfects your suffering. He knows how difficult it is to obey. That's why in Hebrews chapter 5, he says, Although he was a son, although Jesus was perfect, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although Jesus could perfectly obey, he became a man and learned what it means to obey through temptation, through adversity, through persecution, all the things that we are facing now. And so he knows on a personal level exactly what you're going through. And so he is able to bring your faith to completion or perfection. There, there's a show, um, there's a show called Undercover Boss. I haven't, I've watched exactly one episode for this illustration. Um, but you can, you can probably guess what the show's about, right? A, a, a top employee goes undercover as a low-level employee. In many cases, the CEO becomes a low-level worker. And so in this episode, the one that I watched, uh, the CEO of a disaster restoration company, something like Habitat for Humanity, uh, takes on the role of a construction worker, restoring some of these houses that have been destroyed by flood or, or storms. And he was tasked with putting up drywall and carrying heavy things back and forth, things that a CEO typically wouldn't do. And so at the, at the end of the, this whole experience, he, he gained an appreciation and understanding for what most of his employees are doing. But what was beautiful about this particular episode is that the, the show didn't focus on the experience of the CEO. It focused on the reactions of the employees. Uh, six months into the future, uh, all the inter- all the employees were interviewed, and they were all asked, like, what you know, what effect did it have on you when you when it was revealed that your uh, CEO was undercover and now knows what you go through? And without fail, every single one of them said, "I trust my boss more because I know that he knows what we go through on a daily basis." And at That's the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. It's not that Jesus was lacking knowledge and so he needed to become a human because he lacked the knowledge of what it meant to be human. And so he, you know, he learned in that sense. The point the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that you know that he knows now. Jesus took on a human body for you, not for his sake. He took it on so that you know that he knows what you are going through. The question then is why do we go elsewhere for help? If Jesus is our help in time of trouble, if Jesus took on a body so that we, he might help us when we are tempted, why do we go elsewhere? Why, when we're struggling with finances, are we more prone to read up on investing tips than we are to pray when we should be doing both? Why, when we're feeling anxious, depressed, angry, Do we seek things to distract us rather than seeking the things that are above, seeking our Savior, seeking his help, his comfort, his guidance? I suppose, I suspect, not suppose, I suspect, it's because we believe that we're alone. Deep down, we believe that our situation is unique. No one knows what it's like to be married to the person I'm married to. No one one knows what it's like 
There are other parents in this world, but no one knows what it's like to parent my kids in my situation. Yeah, other people have difficult bosses, but nobody has my boss. And we suspect that we're alone. We suspect that no one really knows what we're going through. But the promise, the promise of Scripture is not just high and lofty and theological, right? That Jesus took on suffering so that he might be our righteousness. And Jesus died the death we should have died so that he could be our sacrificial substitutionary atonement. Those things are true and good. But on a very personal level, Jesus and the author of Hebrews is telling us that he knows what you are going through right now. He knows on a personal level what you are going through. How sad, how tired, how guilty, how empty, how discontent you are. And the good news is that because he knows, because he knows the allure of sin, the temptation of sin, he is able to help in a personal, intimate way. That's why in verse 11 we read that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He doesn't look down on you, Christian, and wonder why you haven't figured out your life yet. He doesn't look at you angrily and wonder why you keep going back to the same sin over and over again. He looks at his people with the love, the compassion, and the grace of a good older brother. Amen? And so as we will sing in a moment, the Father's love for us is vast beyond all measure, and He demonstrates this in that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that you have been ransomed and are now the treasured possession of God? If not, believe it, because in Jesus Christ we have everything we need to live our life, to face persecution, and to run this race with endurance. And so let us pray to this suffering, sacrificial, and sympathizing Savior. Dear God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that we have a Savior who knows what we're going through and has done everything we need to be saved. Help us to rest in him. Help us not try to earn anything that is not ours to earn, that we are unable to earn. Help us to rest in the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so at this time, uh, our children are going to come and join us for our last song as we sing of how deep the Father's love is for us, his people, and I invite you, his people, to stand and sing. Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing calls the Father to are the chosen one bring many sons to glory 
God, hear now this peace, receive and rest in it. Your steps are established by the Lord. Though you fall, you shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds your hand. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is your stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps you and delivers you. Go now in that peace. Amen. 